לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. שלום ובוקר לכולם, אדישן של פרשה טוב, אני רבי אליאן מלמד Island Park, New Jersey, the Island Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Shemet, and joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Ajik Chesed, New York City, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Schechter Day School, Long Island. It's great to see you. I feel, I feel like it's been a while. It's been a while. But we're, we're, we're done with Pesach. Yesterday was Yom HaShoah. We are, we are in these days, these very, very special days in Israel. We'll talk about that, I hope, uh, towards the end of our, our conversation. But this week is a double parsha. Tazriya Mitzora uh, writes, you know, smack in the center of, of the book of Ayikra, Leviticus. Um, let's just say, I'll, I'll say this nicely, okay, which is if there are parshas that you want to kind of gloss over or maybe even press the delete button on or the difficult parshas to talk about, Uh, this would be the 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 parsha the the two parshas that are most difficult to talk especially if you have like a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah on this weekend what do you choose and so and 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 here of course I want to say every parsha is amazing and there's this is an amazing parsha there is but I, I'm going to turn to you and I'm ask you to make the case for something interesting or something that's compelling about this parsha that say okay I, I'm I I'm not in a Tazriya Mitzvah here. <laughs> so convince me that these parshiot have something to teach me and, and take me there, take me into that world. So Barry? I'm this, gonna... is, this, is, this is actually, you know, this is in a, in a sense it's not hard because um, the, you, you know, you, you, said, you said and we, we, Take this as a, like an article of faith every parsha is amazing and I, i i totally feel like everything in the torah is meaningful but sometimes it's a little harder to get at right and some things you know the stories certain stories slavery and freedom revelation ethical obviously ethical material is right out there for you and this one you'll forgive me is is uh it's not skin deep you know it's it's you have to you have to go well beneath the surface But there's so much that you could say and 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 some of these things will be homiletical you know you can talk about bodies you know the embodied character of the human being and and this is not a religion as you know certain certain uh, other other religions are you know about a body spirit duality spirit spirit good body bad this is a religion that's actually deeply embodied and what happens to our bodies and the ways that they seem to be you To be you know healthy or unhealthy or ordered or disordered that's really important and in America by the way if, if I if I were an American which I am um, is anything more like is there any theme more relevant across American history than the problems of how you look at other people's skin okay skin is the dividing factor among American cultures and people's appearance and And you could have a lot to do with 
with skin and in and in, in in you know because there's a pun that 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 at the beginning of the Torah after Adam and Eve sin God makes them kutnot or with an ayin and the midrashic and kabbalistic tradition says that they used to have kutnot or with an aleph they had bodies of light and they became bodies of skin and we have the light still within us hidden by the skin and you could have you could have gone over a whole week's worth of beautiful homilies about skin and sex and birth and all these things wrapped up okay, together. Okay, so so you're 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 kindling in me a memory of of thinking about this in which in which um, you know reading biologically the significance of skin. I mean, biologically, skin is you know there, there may be one or two genes that encode the skin. There, you, we are ninety nine point nine 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 percent. You know, with the same DNA, and and skin is so insignificant in terms of the genome, in terms of its marker, and so the fact that we determine, or that and that a whole culture has has determined character based on the color of your skin is is biologically ridiculous. And I think I'll just make the case, you know, following up on you, which is the Torah does not have a category for race there are you know people who claim well that moshe is you know and when he when he complains when he when when the miriam talks about sipora she's talking racially but we've talked about that but but um the torah itself has no category for race it understands mishpacha understands family but not race the second thing i want to say about skin is not in terms of its um uh racial component or identity component but in terms of the boundary between life and death. And so maybe that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about things at the boundary of life and death, which is, you know, here, skin. Skin holds us in. And so when when you cut your skin and you bleed, or when you have eruptions on your skin that are that are puffy and 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 you know not particularly uh Gross. yeah. I think the technical term is yucky. Yucky, yeah, yucky. unseemly. Right. So, so if you're in antiquity and you see someone with with all sorts of sores and such a scale disease, and you don't want to touch them because that you know that that's contagious, uh, yeah, you're going to build a whole structure around it. Barry, I want to turn to you. Yeah, I wanted to go in a slightly different direction, um, but I think Jeremy mind. made the made the essential point that this parsha is very physical. And we live in a culture where physicality is prized and beauty is prized. And the Parsha reminds us that a good part of life is not beautiful and bad things happen to our bodies and we have to tend to them. We can't change our bodies. You know, I was struck, Elliot, when you noted the separation between life and death, but skin also is what separates us from everyone else. Indeed, Our skin is the boundary of ourselves. Yeah. And we sometimes forget that, I think, because we focus too much on other people's skin, that we all have the same skin, as it were. And, you know, we're all, uh, I guess, uh, politely middle-aged men, and things are happening to <laughs> That's our That's why we're so that, popular. <laughs> things are happening <laughs> to our other bodies that, men. <laughs> that are not so kind. And, um, you know, you look in the mirror sometimes, and you wonder what happened to me. I used to be so nice, and you know this is a reality of life that we we have to deal with. And as the Torah often does, it ritualizes this. So things happen to us, 
that have to be tended to. And one of the interesting things here is that the person who tends to it is the ritual guy, the priest. Indeed. Okay, so so let's focus for a second as the Kohen has a very significant role here. Is the Kohen a physician or is the Kohen the 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 practitioner of of rights? The uh, oh, and and to what extent is the coin looking at the individual and to what extent is the coin looking at the at the blotches the skin or or just trying to make categories here what is the role of coin yeah. i mean I don't, I don't exactly know how to how to answer that question the instinct is saying to me that um that healing you know only in only in a modern world would we make a strong distinction there between um uh, a kind of a scientific practitioner and a spiritual one or a ritual one. Um, and, and we, you know, we, if, if you needed a kidney transplant, you wouldn't worry about the spiritual state of the transplant surgeon. You would just go to him for his technical or for technical skills. Um, but I think that ancient people would have seen those things. Uh, biblical people certainly would have seen those things and, and into the Hasidic tradition, which loves, you know, these the Hasidic tradition loves to make a, a basic kind of drash that the, that the that the Rebbe is a kind of physician of the soul, right? That the, sees sees what's wrong with the person and that the that the skin blotches or the discharges or something about the person and they know how to to diagnose and change. And there's like we have different kind of shamanistic traditions and in Hasidut they love, you know, like they go on spiritual uh, the, the Rebbe has a spiritual journey up to heaven to get an answer, or there's folk healing and 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 stuff like that. So I I, I don't really think it's an well, either or in this case. So so I'm just thinking about the experience of praying with someone who is suffering an illness, you know, which which we do from time to time when we visit, or um, and and um, you know that's a different kind of prayer, and that's and there's a different kind of spiritual experience. With that, uh, I, I certainly have you know deep recollection of when I you know in the pastoral care department we, I did a pastoral uh, seminar at uh, Sloan Kettering and you know when you pray with people who are suffering from terminal cancer it's a different kind of experience and what you bring you know in the moment there is is really immeasurable you know and people people want to reach beyond of course they want healing they want they want healing but you know the prayer we used to it was rabbi pesach kraus zichrono livracha who said he, his version of the mishaberach was may god unleash the power the healing power may god unleash the healing power you know i've always thought about that 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 in some way you don't know that you, if you're going to be healed but but you turn to a power beyond all of us to unleash the power within us because the body does have a healing power to it it's remarkable and so that experience of healing is a spiritual a spiritual prayer for healing when someone is in front of you uh, is a very very powerful powerful experience so, so we, the only thing we might pay attention to here is the process that the priest takes to identify and to heal takes a fair amount of time that this is not something that you can make a snap judgment and decide the fate of the person that you're um, 
in investigating or treating whatever uh, verb we want to use here that there's a sequence of of events that has to take place because we're talking about a human being and we often lose sight of the human being in front of us and focus on one aspect of that person you know as we said before the skin or skin diseases and we've all had the experience ourselves or with other people when we see people that are misshapen or missing limbs, it's hard for most of us not to stare at those people as if that's all they are. Something that is identifiably wrong with them. No, and I think part of the ritual here is to remind us that life happens to real people and all of its glory and sometimes it's not glorious moments and we have to respond to the complete person i think that's so so on point and and a very important part of discussing this parasha because i mean everything you said is most true and i think everybody you know the three of us know and and i think you know all of our listeners experience that about seeing physical deformities and we have some sense of the, um, you know, instinctive recoiling that people sometimes have around mental illness. Um, uh, it's a new book out by my congregant and friend, and he's part of a rabbinic family, Jonathan Rosen, Michal Springer's husband, about uh, about mental illness, and a friend of his who who uh, was schizophrenia killed somebody, and and the the revulsion that people have when they come close to mental illness. The other day in New York, I saw somebody who was unbelievably grievous, had some sort of unbelievably grievous head injury. And it's like had a huge misshapen head and a wound. It was, it, it felt, it felt like revulsion. Um, it was, and it was, you couldn't take your eyes away. You couldn't look and you couldn't look away. Um, and all this is true. And in the course of this parasha, what, why it's so important to discuss is that there's an anathematization of uh, like people who have leprosy or uh, no no way to nice say, you know, oozing sores, um, you know, are to be sent outside the camp. And at probably some level of, you know, instinctive epidemiology that, that they, you know, the people who might infect others, they have to go away. And so it makes you think about the way in which societies can anathematize the sufferer and isolate the sufferer. And we all know, you know, in, in our own memory of like the AIDS epidemic or, or the recent, you know, COVID things, like, we got to get away from you people, got to get away, away, away. And that's quite unhealthy uh, for the sufferer. And so I just want to note that um, the rabbis, I think they, they don't, they, they, they read the same Torah and they don't have the same kind of methods of self-consciousness of like criticizing something or, or they, they can't say, well, we're, you know, we disagree with that. They have to just try to, they use their re resources to, um, to sweeten the blow sometimes. Right. So uh, when it says that um, uh, this is chapter 13, verse 45, that uh, the person who has the the um, lepr leprosy affliction, begadav uh, frumim, his clothes shall be torn. Rosho his hair made wild. Al safam He's got to wear a mask. 
and he goes out and calls unclean, unclean. And it certainly seems like stigmatizing. It certainly seems like, you know, making it just as bad as it possibly can be for that person. But in the Talmud, it says that he calls out Tame Tame um, uh, so that everybody will know that he is suffering and will pray on his behalf. That the sufferer should tell other people of, of, of their pain and other people will pray for them, which to me is the sages saying, uh, we got to find a way to, to, to touch an emotional kindness and not just anathematize the people who are having the hardest possible time. Where, where that's uh, in uh, the what, Moed Katan, Moed Katan, fifteen uh, A. I'm going to use that. I used, I used uh, Barry. I used your your vort last week in my in a, in, a, in my Yisker sermon. I got got a lot of got a lot of tread on that. I got a lot of mileage out of. I, I love it. It was it was uh, say the bracha Diana met for for future acceptance. And this is this is a great one. You know. Tamei Tamei, Rachamim. Okay, well, you get lots of... And I just want to add one thing, because what's often lost in the shuffle here is we're so conscious of the priest treating the person who is afflicted that we lose sight of the fact that the treatment is to bring the person back into the community. The person has to leave temporarily, but the idea is that at some point, the person will be able to rejoin the community. And it's important for us to recognize that, because a lot of times we're busy excluding people that we don't think fit for one reason or another, and we don't look for ways to bring them back. Is uh, this an idealized... You don't have to look on page 5, 15A, by the way. I look on page 5A, I'm sorry. 5A, okay. Well, you could on 5A. Yeah. I just want to say, is, is you know, there, are we romanticizing rabbinic culture in, in pulling these quotes? Because... I, I'm I'm guessing that they could be cruel like everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they could be. I don't think we're romanticizing. I think you know, there's this expression that we're looking for a usable past, okay. and the rabbis are the first people in our people that are reading the Torah in a certain way. And the question for us is: Do we read it like the rabbis, meaning follow what they say? Or do we read it like the rabbis and interpret the Bible in our own categories for our own day? And both are valid. Both are valid. Okay. Yeah. So, so um, I'm looking at the the clock, and we're 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 halfway through, and um, maybe maybe this would be a good point to to segue into the um, the Amim, the various the the very important days that we are in right now, having just uh, uh, commemorated Yom Hashoah. We are now in what we call the Aseret Mehoda, the 10 Days of Gratitude, culminating next week, Tuesday, with Yom Zikaron, and then Wednesday, Yom Atzma'ut, 75 years for the State of Israel. Um, very important milestone. And of course, uh, you know, we've been touching on you know, issues in Israel for the last several weeks, and of course, it's been 15 weeks of, of uh, demonstrations, even during Passover, there were demonstrations. So Israel is very much a part of our, our lives and a part of our identities uh, in, in, in so many ways. And I know for many of the people that are watching us and, and listening to us, it is too. I mean, they wouldn't be connected to something like, you know, uh, our, our Parsha talk and, and something like Camp Ramah 
without a, a kind of deep commitment to to Israel and a, and a deep sense of their own Jewish identity connected to to the state of Israel. Um, so I just I want to I want to you know make this conversation around something that we were talking about, which is Migilat Ha'atzma'ut, which is so so much in the news now. You know, you you, you may have seen. Um, pictures or videos of the demonstration, which they take a huge, huge, large Megillat Ha'atzma'ut. You know, they're parading down in Tel Aviv on um, near the Ayalon with the the, um, the Megillat the Scroll of Independence. And um, to the best of my uh, research here, only since 2021 has there been a kind of ceremony at the Kotel, at the, the, the egalitarian part of the Kotel, where they've done a public reading of Megillat Atzmut as part of the days of uh, Yom Atzmut. And we were looking at that, and um, this scroll has now has a, a set of trope to it. Um, and, um, and, and to chant the, the scroll of independence uh, with the... With a trope is is mitzamrer. It, it's very moving. It's very moving to hear that. So the question really is, what trope should we use? Is it a megillah in the sense of like the 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 same trope for um, the five megillot, or is it um, like a haftarah? And and I, I mention this because uh, I, we're having a community commemoration here in, in our in our central New Jersey, and I'm going to be doing this as part of our, the commemoration. I'm going to take a piece of the Megillat Atzmaut and and chant it, and I'm debating myself whether or not to chant it as Haftorah or chant it as Megillah. So I'm going to turn to my learning colleagues for this question, or maybe just some your own reflections on on these and other things related to 75 years. And if you want to start. Chip in here, pitch in. <laughs> Go ahead, Barry. So, I I think that what struck me listening to you, Elliot, is that the need to read the the Declaration, I think, is connected with the age of the state. Seventy five years is more than a lifetime in our tradition. You know, in our tradition, going by the words of the psalmist, seventy years is a measure of a person's life. Eighty if they, they have strength. But we have 75 years, so there are far fewer people who are alive who could tell the story of Israel's independence. The eyewitnesses are almost all gone. And we no longer have the first-person accounts, and so now we have to go to a text. Because when the oral tradition ceases to be rooted in living memory, we turn to a text, and the text speaks to us for those people that can no longer speak to us. And so I think it's very important to have this kind of a ceremony become part of Yom HaTzmut. The other thing I would say is that the text is a very idealized text. It's the great story of the founding of Israel. And that should speak to us quite powerfully, just like I think as Americans, when we hear the beginning of the Declaration of Independence, you know, 250 years or so later, it's still quite moving. It should move us to be better yeah, Americans, better Jews. It, it, I, I want to say it. Th- this is going to have a liturgical role. The, 
and and I, I, I want to elevate the the text of the uh, scroll of independence as a quasi biblical text uh, that has quasi liturgical status as if you were going to say it with a bracha. I, 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 it occurred to me, you know, as I was thinking about this, I said, should I get up in front of the, the, the people that are going to be at the commercial and actually say a bracha, even to recite that, even to say it, it's, 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 it's um, very emotional, you know, because I say, I am according this text a kind of canonical status that makes it a mitzvah to read this in a liturgical setting. So you know, I'm not yeah. there yet, okay? So I'm, I'm actually, in, in the course of this conversation, uh, I, I'm not sure I believe that, I'm not sure I believe this down the road, but for the purpose of our conversation, I'll, I'll say it now. Uh, I can venerate, and I really do love the Megillah, and you and I have talked about, uh, you know, we, we talk about this wonderful book that, that Bina, an organization I'm affiliated with in Tel Aviv, has produced called Talmud Israeli, the, the Israel, Israeli Talmud. There you have it. And, and it's treating it like a sacred text. And it's like Marad, it's got commentary. And I think that's exactly right. They, they also love to do a, a kind of a quasi liturgical reading. But that makes it, you know, what that makes it Torah Sheba Al Peh and not Torah Shabbat. That makes it oral Torah and not written Torah. And the synagogue is a place of written Torah, and the study house is a place of, of oral Torah. And the reason that I'm inclined to this is it, it gets to me uh, some of the spiritual significance of Zionism and the creation of the state of Israel, which I do think has religious significance, but I'm also like increasingly uh, uncomfortable, especially right now, with the problem of according a sacred status to the state because the state is like any state and it can be monumentally screwed up and, and it can be corrupt and politicians are politicians, you know, wherever they live and they can always be counted on to, to take bribes and to self aggrandize and to, to, you know, blow with the wind whenever it suits them. And all those things are true of politicians in Israel as in America. And there is something to be said for, you know, when looking at, for example, the, the Gush Emunim crowd and the Messianic, the Messianic, you know, religious Zionist settlers who I think have vastly over-identified religion with um, the political Zionism in the state of Israel, um, and, and comparing that to the Haredim, who said, you know, the ultra-Orthodox, who said, like, not so fast, religion is religion, and politics is politics. I I, I want to like maybe maybe carry some brief for the moment for uh for the Haredim to say let's slow down a little bit before we identify Jewish religion with the state Medinat Israel. And so I started off this conversation thinking like yeah yeah liturgical reading in synagogue, and now I'm thinking well, maybe, not. maybe that's not exactly right. Okay, so, Barry. I mean so so. Yeah, so what I would emphasize is what is the really important aspect of the modern state of Israel? And I think it's the Yishuv, the settlement of the land of Israel. That what we prize, I think, overall is not necessarily the, the government, as you said, with all of its foibles, 
But the fact that Jews in large numbers have now settled in the land and Jews in also large numbers come to visit that land, that it has become a center of Jewish life. And, you know, we're we're living in a moment where the state of Israel's Jewish population is eclipsing the United States' Jewish population so that Israel will truly be the the place that I think Isaiah envisioned when he said, Torah that the Torah will go forth from, from yep. Israel because it is the largest Jewish community in the world. And that, I think, also has religious significance. And I think that, you know, sometimes we we get bogged down with the details that bother us rather than focus on the things that are transcendent. So, you know, it's interesting. And I want to go back to what you said very earlier, because, you know, the it's maybe it's not an, uh, uh, an accident, a coincidence that that these rituals are emerging, you know, in this in this time frame, um, you know, and, and maybe if we could be a little bit historical, you know, at what point does Torah reading become a liturgical act in ancient history? Well, you know, I tur- I would go to Ezra, Ezra standing at the the water tower and and reading and interpreting, right? That that amazing moment where Ezra is standing and reading the Torah, and there are people that are there that are basically translating it and interpreting it as he's reading it, and that already is after the exiles come back from. Babylonia, they they are they are resettling in the land, and they need a founding document, and that's what he's doing. And so maybe maybe what you're saying is we are subconsciously attentive to the the passing of living memory to an oral memory into into text. And so the reading of text then ought to inspire you know the kind of discussion that is you know codified in this in a book like this and kind of and 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 reaching its expression in, in on the streets now as people you know uh, dramatize the, uh, the the Declaration of Independence in in large parades basically, um, and I'm looking for. Um, I am looking for something emotional and I'm looking for something liturgical because, you know, simply to recite the Hallel, simply to, re- that, that may not be enough. And, and of course, most people don't come to, to synagogue, don't come to Minyan, but they will come to an event, you know, a, a communal commemoration for Israel, especially if there's food, you know, with it. And, and, and maybe that, and, and the opposite of this is, so we just commemorated the Holocaust where there is, I mean, can you think of one, also you know, a Megillah it's, There's no canonical text. You can't, I mean, it's impossible. It's impossible to, it would be impossible to agree on a, a canonical text for for the Holocaust because there is none. It, it's it's beyond, it's beyond canonization in my, you know, in, in a, I mean, we have libraries, we have Masechtot. I always say, you know, you have Masechet Vilna Ghetto, Masechet Warsaw Ghetto, Masechet... Well, where you would end up with, I think, is something in the short form, like the Book of Lamentations, which is five... And it's the Book of Psalms, which is 150 chapters, drawn from a, a large time period of all sorts of expressions, that that could somehow make itself into... A fitting textual memory of the Holocaust. A few years ago, uh, JPS published something. 
Abba Kovner, Megillah, uh, scrolls of testimony. Mm-hmm. But it's, 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 it's unwieldy. It's a huge, it wouldn't make, and of course, uh, uh, Jeremy, you remember David Roski's published lots and lots of years ago, Nechtevater, Night Words, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Liturgy for the Holocaust. So, I don't know. But, uh, so we, we're, you know, looking for something. So back to my question, Megillah, Trump, or... So I, I would recommend that you use more than one Trump. Okay. At, That's a good comment. I think there was a prophetic aspect to the Megillat Asmut, which would go with Haftarah Trump. And as we were talking before the show, Jeremy you know, pointed out that the Ketuvim, you, you know, we understand even if they're written Baruch HaKodesh with Holy Spirit, they're fundamentally human texts. So that the text of Megillat Asmut is a human text. But we wanted to use it to approach the divine, so we use the trope from the Megillot. So, so the question then musically is, and it's it's nothing that we can really understand is what has much more musical pathos. I, I actually <laughs> like the Megillot trope better for this. I, when so you I gave like your that. sample, right? So we have a difference of opinion. I have, you know, a, we have a musical taste on some things. After a trope. When I started reciting it, just to practice it, just to think about it, I it, it brought tears to my eyes. It was it was it was that emotional. It was that you know I read I read the Torah for for last day of Pesach, and uh, it you know it's an emotional time. It's before Yisker, and I found myself choking up reading it because it, it's such an emotional thing. And and of course I also read I have a chazaka in my shul to read the Torah for Shmini Yetzirah because as you know that was my senior servant. So and, and it's emotional. These you know I get emotional because the, the, the melody is emotional. Can't help it. I don't know. But you know so as long as we're talking about this, here we are uh, recording this on Wednesday, the thirteenth day of the Omer as we march our way towards uh um, Shavuot. Shavuot. But you know, Yonatan Geffen died today or yesterday? Yeah, 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 yeah. And and Yonatan Geffen, I mean, this is just so crazy, mind-blowing. Um, you know, David Broza, the first song David Broza ever wrote, he wrote the music to Yehietov, but it was the first song he wrote. Like, what is it? What is that? It's like your first song is an utter classic. What? How could that be? Uh, it's like just downhill from there. But Yonatan Geffen wrote the words. He wrote the so words Yeto. Oh my goodness! Oh. So you imagine the uh, you imagine these these young guys in the 1970s. You know, Geffen was only 76 years old or whatever. So he was in the 70s. He was in his early 20s. You imagine these two guys in their early 20s, and they just—it's like Lennon and McCartney for crying out loud. They just uh, you know, first time out of the blocks, they write. A great classic. So Yeto I mean, was written in seventy eight, I think, or seventy seven. Because like it's got to be after Sadat, because it refers it to. Sadat. Okay, so I was in Israel uh, as on the one year program. That 1981. was 81-82. and David Broza came to perform at Mount Scopus, and he performed Yetov, and the place went wild. It wasn't the first time that he performed it. Because no, I have a recording of it from like nineteen seventy seven. Okay, so it's, it was already around. Yeah. 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 Wow. So, so we're 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 we we have um, you know shtei ktuvim hamachashim two positions. Well, not ktuvim two positions. Megillah, Trump, Haftarah, Trump, and Barry. You're saying doing both. 
which is great. It's a great rabbinic conversation. Uh, and, and so I'll go right back for the for the for the Beit Hamidrash, and it should be it should be uh, you know like the Gemara tune. In the land of Israel was founded, <laughs> and they gave the world the book of books. But then you would have to translate it into Yiddish. Very good. Very good. Okay. No, I think I'm going to do Haftarah because I I want the emotion. Right. Well, the- so what's interesting, Elliot, is what you're saying is that the emotion comes from your associations. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that and that also is an important part because. A holiday like Yom HaAtzma'ud is almost all associational. It's what we bring Absolutely. from all parts of our life that make it the special day that it is. Absolutely. So I want to point out, because I don't have the opportunity to do this too much, 50 years ago I was in Jerusalem for the 25th anniversary of the founding of the State of Israel. Mm. And um, the day before, I walked in and out of every gate except for one of the old city, and the one I didn't, of course, is the one that's closed. Um you know, never the Messiah still has not come to open it. And I, you know, think back at how, not only how young I was, but how young and innocent the state was. I was there just before the Yom Kippur War. And now, 50 years later, Israel is a, an adult. It's a, it's not a kid anymore. And we look for different things in adults than we do in kids. And the, our sense of the problems and also of the hopes are different as well. And I think that, you know, one of the things that, as we've been talking about, we're looking for ways as religious Jews to find expression to those deep, deeply rooted aspects of our, of our soul, which responds to a modern state of Israel. So beautifully said. And with that, I think we gotta we gotta come to our conclusion. Tom Tom Hasman Shelanu on the pre Yoma Atzmut uh, broadcast. Uh, as always, want to thank people watching and and listening to us. We are so honored that you spend some time with us. We really really mean it. It's 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 beyond uh, touching to us. Uh, so we really appreciate it and look forward to seeing you again. In the meantime, want to say Shabbat Shalom, Kodesh Tov, Atzmut Sameach. And see you all next week on the next edition of Project.